Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we looked back at the top stories from the national parks in 2019 and brought you stories about the challenges facing endangered Sonoran pronghorns in Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, a lodging concession at Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and how ash from a 1912 volcanic eruption in today's Katmai National Park and Preserve in Alaska was creating problems. You can find those and other stories about parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's episode, we talk with Michael Kellett, the executive director of Restore the North Woods, about a campaign to see the size of the national park system roughly tripled to more than 182 million acres. And Traveler contributing editor Erica Zambello and Becky Lomax, author of Moon's USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to All 59 Parks, Join me to discuss our favorite national park destinations. There are, in the United States, 419 units in the national park system, covering a bit more than 85 million acres. Is that enough? Is it too much? Is it far from being enough? After all, the park system harbors the country's rich history, its culture, its scenic wonders. Michael Kellett doesn't believe there are enough parklands in America. Kellett is the executive director of Restore the North Woods, a nonprofit organization that long campaigned for a national park in the North Woods of Maine. That movement was realized to a large degree with creation of Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument back in December of 2016. Mr. Kellett believes the national park system should be about three times its current size and joins us today to explain why it should be that large and how to accomplish that goal. Welcome to The Traveler, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here. So why does the park system need to be larger than it currently is? Uh, well, I think the reason is that the, the what par- national parks do, what they accomplish, is something we need a lot more of, and that is they can store carbon and, and maintain intact ecosystems, and they can provide green space for people, for public health and well-being, all, of, all things that we need a lot more of if we're going to address the current crises we're facing. And there are other ways that potentially can address some of these problems, but national parks can do all three of those things at once. And there's something that people love, something people understand. And, and based on our research, uh, we could ex- greatly expand the national park system and it would be pretty, pretty straightforward and simple, actually. Um, and it would save, in a lot of ways, it would save us a lot of money as well. Well, well, couldn't some uh, of these goals be accomplished um, through state parks? Um, for instance, Snow Canyon State Park in Utah or Blackwater Falls in West Virginia. I mean, they're, they're beautiful landscapes and they hold carbon and whatnot and provide for healthy outdoor recreation. Well, it's, yeah, it's not an either-or situation and uh, more state parks is a great idea. But there are a couple of reasons why that isn't going to create uh, enough of a benefit to 
uh, override the goal for, uh, for new parks. And one of them is that the states don't have the resources to do what is ne needed. And number two, a lot of the land that potentially uh, could be national parks and needs protection is federal land, which the states have no oversight over. And number three, the states have not thus far shown the commitment to fully protecting uh, land that is really neat, that a national park provides. So, for example, uh, in Massachusetts, where I live, we, we have a bill that we've introduced, uh, H 897, which would designate all state lands, uh, conservation lands, about 11% of the state as parks and reserves. But this would be done legislatively in a bill, and the bill would basically create a, it would be like the Adirondack Park in, in New York, where uh, in, in the Constitution, in that case, there's a provision that you cannot destroy, cut, burn, whatever, trees. Uh, and so it's in the law that you can't in the future go log or whatever. Most state parks are not protected legislatively or in, in, in the law of the state. So they can just change their mind in the future administratively and start logging. And that has in Massachusetts, that was happening. Uh, there was a big pushback, but there's still Massachusetts, not one acre of state land is statutorily protected from uh, resource extraction or whatever. And that's the case in almost all other states. There are only a mm -hmm. few exceptions. Adirondack Park in New York, Baxter Park in Maine, uh, I think Calif some of the California parks. But generally, those, those parks only have administrative protection and not permanent uh, uh, statutory protection. Yeah, yeah. Now you mentioned that uh, most states probably couldn't afford to to add more to their um, state park systems. You know, as you well know, the National Park Service is struggling with a roughly twelve billion dollar maintenance backlog, and it only seems to be growing year after year after year. Can the federal government afford more national parks? You know, after all, some some parklands that are donated to the park system come with their own maintenance backlog. Right. Well, there, there are a couple answers to that. One is that most national parks don't, well, number one, the wilderness parks, parks that are natural area parks, really don't need intervent, human intervention to keep the ecosystem healthy and so forth. For the, there are very few exceptions to that. Mo, almost all of the backlog is based is facilities, infrastructure, and so forth. Now, the exception to that, of course, is with historic parks. Those uh, obviously need resources and, and a lot more than they have because you, you can't, buildings will deteriorate and so forth. So, so when it comes to historic parks, we do need a bigger budget. And when it comes to uh, natural parks, yes, it's good to have a budget to keep Yellowstone Lodge, uh, you know, Old Faithful Lodge intact and to keep trails going and so forth, that's really good. But if we, you know, the parks aren't going to fall apart ecologically if we don't have a lot of money, number one. Number two, the um, the amount of money we're talking about is a tiny sliver of the total federal budget. That, and when it, when it comes down to it, the Congress and and the president will do what the public demands they do if there's enough public support. And that's so here we had this giant tax cut for rich people and and corporations. The, the the entire budget for the National Park Service wouldn't even appear as a dot in that in that 
in the size of that bill. So we have, it's not that we don't have the money, it's that the, the politics have not been right. And, and so I don't poo-poo the reality of that problem, but that's not a, an insoluble problem. What we, what we need to do is prioritize protecting these places and these ecosystems and these landscapes, because once they're gone, they're gone. And, you know, short-term budgetary problems should not hold us back from giving these areas protection. And the very worst, we, can, we should draw a line around an area and designate it as a national park and just leave it alone and just say, mm-hmm. this is going to be a future national park. And right now it's a national park in holding, but at least we're not going to do any da- more damage to it. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, a good example of what you say in terms of um, some parks don't need a hefty budget would be uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters. Um, there, there's no there's no lodge there, and there's a, a great volunteer uh, friends group, if you will, that has uh, worked to help put in the trails and whatnot. Yeah, that's a great example. And also the uh, the uh, parks in Alaska, for example, they don't. You know, Denali has a fairly good budget because that's a destination that's well known. But other than that. Most of the parks in Alaska have fairly small budgets, considering how big they are. Um, so, you know, that's not a it's not a black and white thing. But the point is that we shouldn't let short. This is a totally political decision that ha, that has limited the funds for national parks, a short term political decision. And what we, and here we are. On the other hand, we're talking about we need to take steps to address climate change. If we, if there, there was a study done, for example, that said, that uh, showed that if we stopped logging our public lands, it would ha- create a huge jump in the amount of sequestered carbon uh, in the in forests and and grasslands and wetlands and so forth over the current situation. All, we have all this public land, um, and and that goes for the states too, for for that matter. The state, you know, some of the states have very large expanses of public land. Michigan has a huge, I think it's, uh, you know, 3.7 million acres or something of state land in Michigan. And it's almost all open to logging and other exploitation. It's grossly mismanaged. Um, So the state could choose to protect more of that, and that would be a good thing. But again, the states haven't shown that they have the commitment to any large-scale full protection permanent full protection from resource extraction like national parks provide that that's the thing is we know what national parks can do and despite the fact that there's right now the politics are as bad as they've ever been for protection of lands and waters and so forth yet national parks have come through relatively unscathed i mean for example the budget problem you're talking about has has gone on but the parks haven't been destroyed the parks haven't haven't fallen apart some of the some of the latrines maybe have but um and they've tried to privatize the parks they've made a few inroads but not a whole lot and even conservative uh republicans support the parks you know here as you know utah during that major government shutdown the utah legislature approved appropriated funds to keep the utah parks open because they're so important for the economy so I here we have this really important tool that has broad public support. As you probably know, the uh, Pew poll that they do every so often, um, they, they rate federal agencies, and the U.S. Postal Service always rates number one, and number two is the National Park Service. And I, this, the last one they did, I believe it was last year, it was like 80% public approval of the National Park Service. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the, the Utah legislature, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, the Utah legislature and the congressional delegation also were behind the movement to uh, shrink uh, the Bears Ears and um, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. We're talking today with uh, Michael Kellett, the executive director of Restore the North Woods, um, about the need for more national parks in America. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So, Michael, do, do you think there, there needs to be a public education campaign for public lands? And I say that because I, I grew up on the East Coast and long ago moved west where there's a, uh, an amazing number of acres of public lands in the west, not so much as in the east. And some folks in the east don't really understand what public lands are all about. And they, they don't realize that um, these are all our public lands, perhaps, and that we need to protect them. So does there need to be a, a public education campaign to, one, educate everybody about what public lands are and what they represent and who owns them, and to your point about why we need na- more national parks? Right. Well, yes. That, I mean, that's the key because it, it, everything indicates that the public generally would support an agenda for expanding national parks. Um, it, but they don't, number one, most people don't really know that, we, uh, that we're even logging on national forest lands. They don't know that we're grazing livestock on Bureau of Land Management lands. They don't really know what's going on. So they think public lands are all basically like national parks in the first place. And uh, they also uh, underestimate probably the benefits of, of creating national parks to address these, these large-scale problems that we're increasingly concerned about, like climate change and biodiversity and open space. So yes, we, we definitely need a public education campaign or, I mean, this, it, it, the only way to expand the national parks is to get broad public support. It's got, and that's why, that's why we think that a, an omnibus federal bill that that lumps a bunch of national parks in one big bill is the way to go. Because then you start bringing constituencies from all over the country, 
uh, it would be like the Alaska Lands Act was, where it was so big that that there was support from every state in the country for that bill. Uh, otherwise, you end up fighting individual state political uh, establishments. And as you point out, with Utah, they're schizoid about it. Of course, they they you know on one hand they fight national monuments. I I would argue that it's because they don't get the they only see the economics and they think they're not economically beneficial, but they do see the economics of national parks. And so once they get them, they realize that they've got this gold goose laying the golden egg. But that, but again, that comes back to politics. They, they know that if they, if they undermine those national parks, they would, they would get a lot of pushback uh, even in Utah. So education is key. And then getting people to realize that we actually can do something because the opponents of protecting land want us to all think there's nothing we can do it's too late we're totally overwhelmed we can't uh, we can't not drill and log and graze because the, the our country will collapse um they that's what they thrive on is trying to is getting people to think it's hopeless that there's nothing that can be done you know you mentioned a, a large omnibus bill that would affect um, most if not all the states in the country how do you get there and, and i mentioned that because you know the the western many of the western congressional delegations are opposed to setting aside any more um public lands um that would be immune um from extraction industries um for example the the red rock wilderness measure has been proposed i think going back uh 30 or 40 years um there are many national parks that don't have officially designated wilderness because the the in-state congressional delegation doesn't want to see that wilderness officially designated. So how do you overcome the, the, the opposition from states like Wyoming or Utah or Idaho? Well, the way we do it is we, we craft a bill that is, is sort of a coalition of the willing. So we start out with areas where there actually is support or potential support. Um, there are a number of members of Congress who are still supporters of national parks who are who and and we've even created a few new ones recently because members of Congress took the initiative, including some historical parks, uh, Republican members. So there are members of Congress who like national parks. And so and and some of them have areas in their states that could potentially be additional parks. And so we enlist them. But we also uh, pick areas that are to, to begin with, at least. Um, that are so compelling that it that it creates national pressure because they even as I mean I totally support the Red Rocks Wilderness Bill but most people in the country still really don't know much about it if they know it that it even exists and so it's it's generally still seen as a state level bill even though there are members of Congress from outside who who've been the key uh, ones to introduce it so. Uh, but if you, if we had that, or, or we had new national parks, I mean, in a national parks omnibus bill, you can also uh, have instant wilderness, which is what they did in Alaska. So there's nothing that precludes designating wilderness areas as well, as well as wild and scenic rivers or national trails. So you basically start looking around as to where there are there are constituencies existing, or whether there's a potential constituency. Um, a lot of this is is it like a chicken and egg thing where where you get the ball rolling and all of a sudden people hear that there is actually a vehicle where they they could they could uh, if they get something going in their region they could tack it onto this bill 
and get it protected. Right now, you have to start everything from scratch if you want to protect your favorite area. Um, and that's a huge job. And most people don't know how to do it, much less feel like they have the political wherewithal to do it. Yeah, yeah. For for those unfamiliar, the Red Rock Wilderness Bill would um, set aside um, some millions of acres of um, federal lands in in Utah as official wilderness. So, so Michael, I believe you have a list of roughly a hundred or so um, potential national park sites. Um, could, could you point out a few of those? Well, actually, the the uh, li- the full list is about five hundred, but uh, there's a list of the, the top what I think are the top priorities for various reasons. Um, and that, that includes places like, um, and, and that includes expanding existing parks as well, because there's some existing parks whereby an expansion would, would protect more land than a whole new national park would in other places. Mm-hmm. So, so you got places like, um, for example, expansion Yellowstone here, we are talking about, uh, you know, bison being shot and hunted. We've grizzly bears are on the verge of being delisted. Uh, wolves are already getting delisted. Uh, pronghorn are more and more threatened as they as they travel uh, in their various in their travels between highlands and lowlands and so forth. Yellowstone is it protects all of these species. It's when they leave the park that they, they are in danger. So in Yellowstone National Park is surrounded by millions of acres of existing public land where these animals are threatened. So why not expand Yellowstone? Let's triple the size of Yellowstone uh, to take in all these national forest and BLM lands as well around the park. Um, that, that could be done. There's no, there's, you know, it's financially, it'll probably save us money in the long run because we're, subsidizing this extraction so you're talking you're talking places like uh, the bridge of teton and the shoshone national forest and the uh wind river range for example yeah and um and the gallatin here there's a big there's a big controversy about what to do with the gallatin range and their you know conservationists are already compromising on what would be protected what wouldn't let's include the entire gallatin range why 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 are we even arguing i mean this is the thing we've got we got an, a global emergency in terms of climate change. We got a global emergency in terms of species extinction, and I would argue we have a, at least a national emergency in terms of open green space for our population in in cities. So why do we think it's it's a radical idea to address these problems directly by protecting lands that would help? Um, and that, that there are other places all across the country. I, uh, for example. In the Cascades, in in uh, Oregon and Washington, the, uh, the you probably saw there was a recent study done that that uh, found that if you protected at, at the very least the most in, most uh, carbon dense forests in the in the uh, Cascades and the, the coastal range, you it would have a huge impact on sequestering carbon. Yet we continue to log these forests. They're mostly national forests, but also a lot of it is Bureau of Land Management land. We could create, you know, we could expand North Cascades National Park. We could create a Mount St. Helens National Park that takes in a good chunk of the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. We could create a Mount Hood National Park that takes in the whole national forest. And then there was a, you know, Volcanic Cascades National Park was proposed by John Muir, basically, originally, 
and could go from Mount Hood down to Crater Lake or near Crater Lake and or the Three Sisters and then expand Crater Lake National Park. So you could have, and then there's a proposal for an ancient forest national park that would take in the Siskiyous and go south to the Eel River in California. So you could create national parks that would sequester huge amounts of carbon in the Pacific Northwest alone. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the East Coast, we've, you know, we really need to expand the Katahdin National Monument in Maine uh, to, to be much larger. And we proposed, you know, a 3.2 million acre Maine Woods National Park. And there's huge forested landscape there that's growing back. And if we don't cut these trees down, they will sequester a huge amount of carbon in the future. Um, but there are other places in the Northeast, like the, the White Mountain National Forest, the Green Mountain National Forest, both of which are being logged, heavily logged, and which could be national parks. You've got the Berkshires, you've got the uh, places like that, you've got the Quabbin. Cape Cod, uh, which you mentioned, um, uh, as having spent a lot of time there, you could expand Cape Cod National Seashore to be a national park and include Stellwagen Bank. Marine National Marine Sanctuary, and that raises a whole other issue. Is there are a whole bunch of areas, marine areas, that don't have full protection that could be national parks? Um, then, in the center of the country, of course, they've been hugely cheated out of national parks. Um, I'm from Michigan originally. We could create a Three Great Lakes National Park that borders on Lake Huron, Lake Superior, and Lake um, Michigan. Um, you could create a Northwoods National Park that takes in uh, forests in the western Upper Peninsula and northern Wisconsin. You could turn uh, one of the big threat national park threats. I mean, this is the other thing is we can address some of the threats to to public lands directly by turning lands that are now open to logging, mining, and fracking and whatever into national parks. That automatically gets rid of that threat. If it's a national park, that's not going to happen. So. The Superior National Forest in Minnesota, for example, which is seriously threatened by hard rock strip mining and, and, and of course, and major logging that's been going on. You could create a huge national park there that would include Boundary Waters, uh, national Wilderness, but uh, and stretch over to Voyagers National Park. Um, and then, of course, on the, the, the far southwest, you've got this idiotic border wall that Trump is is that's you know even though trump hasn't gotten what as much as he wants they've been building this wall um and it's really damaging some of the existing national park and other public lands um you could create a sonoran desert national park that would take in oregon pipe cactus national monument and um that would bring a lot more public attention to an area that really isn't getting much public attention um san pedro river which is a national conservation area, which most people don't even know about. That's another area that's really threatened by border wall stuff. That that should be a national park. That's a globally significant uh, ecosystem that's really endangered. And another area like that is the lower Rio Grande Valley, which is you could create a multi-unit national park along the border there. That's severely threatened by this idiotic border wall, also by... Uh, land development and intensive agriculture and pollution. Um, but this is a globally important ecosystem. Yeah. So have you, have you gotten the attention of anybody in Congress? We have not. Uh, we've only generally talked to members of Congress and not in just letting some of them know that we're thinking of this and haven't 
haven't really taken it to the next level because we weren't ready to take action. But we think the time is right now to start laying the groundwork because even though we're not likely to get any kind of legislation passed in the next year, uh, we need to have uh, some of the we need to have the candidates for president, for example, put this on their radar screen. This ought to be a part of the Green New Deal, for example, mm-hmm. expanding national parks and wilderness, too. I mean, when I talk about national parks, wilderness, federal wilderness areas also provide this kind of protection. So we should be thinking about both. Yeah. You've been building a, a website to promote your vision. Um, any idea when that will be go, going live and where folks can find that? Uh, well, we're working on it right now, hopefully in the next week or so, I hope, very, very shortly. It's at uh, www.newparks.org, and um, it's it's under construction, but when you, that's what you get when you go there right now. But it, oh, it, it should be up very soon, and um, it's as you know, it's a lot of work to put a website together, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's gradual, but... Uh, we're going to have a we have a map that has these areas that I, I mean I could go on and on about these areas but that and we're going to have a short uh, blurb about each one and then there there are a lot of them as you as you know there are groups around the country who have proposed who have park proposals out there like the High Allegheny National Park that's mm-hmm. proposed in West Virginia that would protect much or all of the Monongahela National Forest. There's a group that's uh, that's um, working to try to do that. And we're going to have a link to their site so people can go and find out what they're doing and help them. And, uh, and that's true. There's a, you know, there are websites for Mount hood for the ancient forest national park for an Allegheny national park. I mean, there are a number of across the country, there are a number of existing groups that we want to try to link to our website. So people know where they can go to, to help. All right. It, it sounds very, very interesting and um, uh, definitely a, a tough path to, to reach the, the top of the mountain, so to speak, but um, interesting nonetheless. Um, we've been talking today with uh, Michael Kellett, uh, Executive Director of Restore the North Woods, uh, about a campaign to add more units to the national park system. Michael, thanks for sharing your thoughts today, and uh, we'll, we'll definitely want to um, touch bases down the road to, to see where the progress is being made. Thank you, Kurt. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. 
The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Winter is a great season to explore the national park system. You have options to flee the cold weather and aim for destinations that are too sultry to really enjoy in the summer months, but which are much more comfortable in the winter months. Or you could head for the snow and cold to explore national parks that not only are less crowded in winter, but also offer different opportunities to enjoy. To sort through the options, we've invited Becky Lomax, author of USA National Parks, and traveler contributing editor Erica Zambello to lend their thoughts. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'll be honest. I like the shift in seasons, from hot sunny days to cold snowy days. And so when I think of winter in the national parks, I'm often looking to parks where I can bring my cross-country skis and snowshoes. Places like Yellowstone, Grand Teton, even Acadia National Park after a good nor'easter. What about you, Becky? You know, I'm right with you on that. I'm totally into cross-country skiing. And... I live right outside of Glacier National Park, so when the roads all close with snow in the park, we go ski the roads, and it's just a wonderful, at least for us here, quick getaway and a beautiful way to spend a day cross-country skiing up the roads in the park. It really is, and I had one opportunity to visit Glacier in the winter, and unfortunately, it was only one, but I made the most of it. I I skied from... um, mcdonald lodge all the way up to avalanche lake and back and it was just phenomenal and getting up there and and looking at avalanche lake just coated in snow and the the uh the streaming water that was now um cascades of ice down the the basin was just just gorgeous yes that's a wonderful trip to do and the west side ones are in the park are better like the one you did, the one into Bowman Lake and so forth, because uh, the snow is more consistent. You go mm-hmm. to the east side ones, like skiing the Two Medicine Road or Many Glacier Road, and sometimes you have to take off your skis because there's so much wind that blows the snow right off the road. Yeah. And so it's kind of this game of putting skis on, taking them off, and then always kind of fighting those eastern winds. So you did the right one. Western's better. Yeah. Now, now one park where I've never had to take my skis off is is Yellowstone. And for a number of of years, we would go up and uh, get a place in West Yellowstone where you are just um, literally minutes away from uh, the Rendezvous ski trail system, which is phenomenal. The U.S. Forest Service and the the town of West Yellowstone really maintains an incredible cross-country ski venue there. And you can ski right out of West Yellowstone into, into the National Park, down to the Madison River. Yes. And actually, I'd go one step further. My favorite thing to do in Yellowstone Park is to take the snow coach into Old Faithful and stay there for a couple nights and cross-country ski out at Old Faithful. 
Um, you can just go for days there looping through all of those geyser basins and the steam coming out of them is just incredible. Yeah, and of course, it's a ready access for snowshoeing, too. I uh, Once I snowshoed up to the observation point and just looking down at the uh, the upper geyser basin with all the, the steam coming up from the geysers, and if you stay there long enough to watch Old Faithful go off, is really pretty magical. It is. It is. And it's a way different view than summer, you know, because summer, the temperatures are warmer, so you don't quite see all of that prolific steam on the mm-hmm. landscape. And so that's that's pretty cool. Plus, yeah. you don't have the crowds either. No, absolutely. Summer. Absolutely. Yeah. You just have to watch the weather because I was there and uh, I guess it was 20 below one day. And I, I this was in the last century when I didn't have a digital phone to take pictures. And so I had to take my gloves off to it to work my SLR camera. And uh, I think I picked up a little um, frostbite that um, dogs me to this day. Oh, ouch. Yeah, it can get cold. Now, of course, um, nearby Grand Teton National Park also is a great winter destination. They they groom the, the park road for uh, cross-country skiing. And of course, you've got all those uh, trails for snowshoeing. Yeah. In fact, that section between Taggart Lake and Signal Mountain is phenomenal because you get to ski right below those incredible Teton peaks and you can go into Jenny Lake in winter and, you know, hardly anybody's there. It's amazing. Yeah. And if you get out there on one of those Bluebird Chamber of Commerce days, the the views are just spectacular. Absolutely. Now, I know Erica likes her warm weather destinations. She lives year-round in Florida, which would make you think she'd like to escape for the cold. But Erica, you have some warm weather parks that you like to turn to in winter, don't you? When people think of winter destinations, they often imagine snowy landscapes, ready for snowshoeing or skiing, or else they imagine bright, sun-drenched parks where people living in northern climes can escape the cold for a few days. My park recommendations fall a bit in the middle, Kurt, but since I'm from Maine, I will definitely include one for people to escape to and enjoy some warmer temperatures. I recommend swinging south to the Little River Canyon National Preserve in Alabama. Now, now Erica, isn't isn't Alabama going to be a little cold in the wintertime? Because you are in the south, even in the winter, the temperatures can remain comfortable, which is perfect for hiking along the park's nature trails or hopping in and out of the car on the nearby scenic drive. Honestly, regardless of the season, the falls are really impressive, and the water takes on a brilliant blue-green hue when hit directly by the sun. I'm recommending the preserve not only because of the mostly reasonable winter weather, but also because of the unique fishing opportunities. You can definitely fish in the park. As long as you have a valid fishing license, you can drop a line or cast a fly anywhere within the preserve. Locals um, from the nearby area really recommend Canyon Mouth Park, particularly for fly fishing, mostly because it's super accessible, but really anywhere along the Little River is an option. In addition to the usual bluegill, crappie, and catfish, anglers actually come far and wide to try for the rare red-eye bass, which, yes, does have a red eye. These fish can reach up to 17 inches in length and are a crown jewel for many anglers' life fish list just because they're uncommon. Anywhere else in Alabama you'd recommend for a winter visit, Erica? If you have time, definitely check out DeSoto Falls. It's accessible via the small park and the small parking lot, but the falls are so tall. And they really make an interesting contrast to the wet and wide falls that are inside the National Preserve. 
really at over 100 feet, it's just a beautiful sight. Okay, now, another one of your favorite destinations in winter, Erica, you've told me, is Chaco Canyon. Um, Why go there in the winter months? So one of my most vivid memories in the national park system comes from the Chaco Culture National Historic Park in New Mexico. It covers about 50 acres, and this ancient archaeological site was once a major thoroughfare for ancestral Pueblans. And today you can actually walk around the impressive structures that they built a thousand years ago. Even though we think of New Mexico maybe as a hot desert, it can get very cold in the winter months, and Chaco itself sits at over 6,000 feet. When I visited, my mom and I had the place nearly to ourselves because it was so cold, which really added to the aura of mystery and stillness to the ancient walls. Do you ever run into problems with snow? What I remember is that the, the sky clouded almost as soon as we arrived, And within minutes, a flurry of white snow swirled around from above, and it totally covered the tops of the kivas and other structures. And uh, it's funny because it looked like salt, because again, I didn't, my brain didn't think that you could have snow in the desert like that, which I know is silly. If you do make it down to Chaco during the three to four snowstorms they have per year, it's really magical because you don't often get to see the snow in in the desert landscape. Still, I do want people to know that because there's the possibility of extreme weather, make sure you are prepared when you visit, um, especially if you are camping. So warm stuff, call the visitor center ahead of time, you know, all that good preparation. Now, Becky, you've traveled to quite a few national parks to tackle field research for your guidebooks. Have you encountered any warm weather parks that you would recommend others to visit between fall and spring? Oh, absolutely. Probably the top three I'd put on my list out here in the West would be head down to Big Bend National Park in Texas, um, Joshua Tree, and Death Valley. And the reason is um, your temperatures are so much, especially for us, you know, northerners in the country the temperatures in winter are so much more pleasant for hiking so you can get you know 60 70 degree temperatures and you know do all the hiking you want and they rarely get snow I mean they do every once in a while but it's not real common and um, Death Valley in particular the flower blooms start to come on in February now, Death Valley is an incredible place in the wintertime. I, I've been there, and, and part of the beauty is is you don't encounter those 120-degree days. But at the same time, and, and the same can be said for Joshua Tree, the winter months are their busy seasons. They are. Actually, um, with Joshua Tree, it's busy in December and January and February because the temps are so pleasant. But March is the huge month there. So if you can at least hit the winter, the real December to February months, you're, you won't have the, the monster um, crowds that show up in March. Now, I must admit that I enjoy fleeing the cold weather on occasion. I've been to Virgin Islands National Park in the Caribbean and would heartily recommend it to anyone who likes warm weather, sugar sand beaches, and palm trees. Never been there, Becky? I have not. It's on my list. I so want to go. No, it's it's just, it is so worth the trip. I mean, we spent a week there and it wasn't, wasn't long enough. I mean, each day we would wake up and uh, grab our snorkeling gear and, and go to a different beach each day. And yeah. 
you know, some are, are kind of busy like Trunk Bay, but then you can find others that uh, are kind of off the beaten path. And uh, Salt Pond um, is a beautiful, beautiful small bay. And you, you want to get out there in there early, like before uh, before 10 o'clock, because they're, you know, whatever crowd is going to show up, you know, shows up after 10. But if you get there, you know, 9, 9.30, you can usually find a nice, nice patch of sand that you can lay down your 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 beach blanket and whatnot. And the, the, the vegetation there, you actually can set up underneath a tree so you get some shade. And then you've just got this incredible bay to go snorkeling in and the coral reefs and the, the marine life and whatnot. Yeah. My winter escapes has always been down to the um, Hawaiian Islands. So I've gone to the two national parks there. And it's perfect to go in winter because their hurricane season is summer, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's got the the better weather, the, um, you know, the wonderful time to go there. But then that's also the high season for visiting Haleakala and Hawaiian Volcanoes National Park. So you do get some crowds, but they're still worth visiting. Yeah. Now, Erica, um, the winter months also are the, the high season for Everglades and Big Cypress National Preserve. And, uh, I would imagine even Dry Tortugas National Parks. What what are they like for um, a winter escape? Okay, so for my last recommendation, I did promise you some warmer weather parks, and I promise that I will deliver. So if you have more time for a winter getaway, you can't go wrong with the South Florida Trio, Biscayne, Big Cypress, and the Everglades. Biscayne is right next to Miami. So if you're flying into the Miami airport, you can really just head straight there. Biscayne National Park, which is known as a watery wonderland, is best experienced from the water. Duh. Either snorkeling or kayaking or boating or joining one of the many tour companies that take people around. In addition to coral reefs, there are multiple historic shipwreck sites that can also make for fascinating underwater adventures. It has a really interesting, uh, unique camping experience where uh, people can go out to Boca Chita Key and spend the night. You are really out there on Boca Chita Key and can enjoy being on the water and views from the 65-foot-tall lighthouse as long as there's a staffer on the island that can let you in. You do have to be super self-sufficient, though, and pack in everything you need, including drinking and washing water. Head west, and you drive through both Big Cypress and Everglades National Park. Even though I'm kind of a type A planner person, I actually prefer to just meander through these giant protected areas because then I can stop at whatever feels the most interesting that day. Both parks are ideal in the winter months, not only because you avoid the stifling heat of the summer, but also because most of the bugs are down for the count while birds remain plentiful. In Big Cypress, plan to stop at all the scenic overlooks and boardwalks. Some of them are on the shorter side, But honestly, they present all these different viewscapes and ecosystems within the larger park and give you an opportunity to get up close and personal. I particularly enjoy the raised Kirby Storter boardwalk, but I'm pretty well known for my boardwalk obsession, so that's no surprise. In the Everglades, I opt for the visitor center at Shark Valley because of its 15-mile tram road that is perfect for strolling. And no, you do not have to go the whole 15 miles. You can go in and turn around when you want or you can take a bike or a tour. Because the trail takes you right into the marsh, the wildlife possibilities are like almost endless. From my favorite, which are the bright purple gallinules, to fish and turtles and, and just so much more. 
Now, I know Everglades and, and Big Cypress um, have alligators, and Everglades got some crocodiles. Um, are they uh, reptilian monsters that you have to watch out for? There will be alligators. I promise you there will be alligators. In fact, when I was there last November, I saw multiple mother alligators protecting their tiny alligator babies. This isn't something you should worry about because unless you're a total idiot, they are going to leave you alone. So just follow the simple park rules by giving any alligator you see plenty of space and don't antagonize them in any way, which includes getting up close for a selfie. Don't do it. Give them plenty of space. Um, If you are on a bike or a tour and make it to the halfway point of the trail, the Shark Valley Observation Tower gives visitors the opportunity to see for just miles and miles and miles out across the Everglades. And that's another good way to see alligators. Should we be concerned about hurricanes during a visit to these parks? Hurricane season technically ends at the close of November, but warming global temperatures mean that storm season could extend into the future. So if you're going around that time, watch the weather. If you plan to travel anywhere near the end of November, And just know that if there is a hurricane, even if it's way before you plan to visit, it could close off sections of different Florida parks. And it's best to just be flexible. You know, one place that um, most of us have trouble getting to any time of year are the national parks in Alaska, because it it does take some some extra effort to get there. But um, I imagine winter in um, Denali or Wrangell St. Elias is really incredible. The, yeah, they're very snow-covered, so you've got to be able to deal with snow, and you also need to be able to deal with cold temperatures. However, um, you can, for cross-country skiers and snowshoers, Denali, you can go in and just travel on the park road that is closed and all snow-covered. And likewise, at Kenai Fjords National Park, you can ski on the exit glacier road that one closes in winter too and there's actually a public use cabin that is rented in winter up at exit glacier so you Mm -hmm. can ski in spend the night there and come out and that's one that's on my bucket list up there (laughs) i really want to go do that yeah there are a number of uh those public use cabins we're seeing more and more i know uh lake clark national park and preserve has some and uh I, I would I would definitely go in the, the summertime. I'm not sure about winter, although Exit Glacier looks like fun. Yeah. The, and the cool thing about the Alaska parks is, you know, everybody wants to see the northern lights. But when most people go up in summer, they forget it's 24-hour daylight up there in, in a lot of cases. And you don't get the northern lights. So if you want to see the northern lights, winter's the time to go up and actually see them. Yeah, yeah. Now we've focused a lot on the the Rocky Mountain parks and some of the Western park destinations in Alaska. You know, there are some national parks back east that are just incredible in wintertime, both because of the different look. I mean, you can go into Shenandoah and and all the hardwood forests have lost their, their leaves, so you get better views of the landscape and maybe even some of the old homesteads up there. And uh, I know when they do get enough snow, you can ski on Skyline Drive uh, if they haven't plowed it. Um, Of course, you can snowshoe up there. 
And then you also have your military parks back east, um, places like Valley Forge and uh, Jockey Hollow up at Morristown National Historical Park. I mean, these are incredible places to visit any time of year. But in winter, you know, you can kind of get the feeling of what General Washington and the Continental Army had to endure. Of course, General Washington and his troops had their winter encampment at Valley Forge from uh, uh, late uh, fall 1777 into 1778. And then um, the winter of 1779 to 80, um, they found themselves in central Jersey at Morristown, where General Washington had a nice warm home to um, spend the winter in, and he actually brought Martha up to spend the the winter months with him. But the troops had to build their um, small huts out at Jockey Hollow. And you can go to these places today and and walk in the snow if there's a heavy snowfall, but certainly feel the cold and just try and imagine what those troops had to endure. You know, one one aspect of winter in the national parks um, we almost forgot, Becky, was there are a couple parks that actually have some um, ski resorts in them and and one that used to have a ski resort in it but no longer does but you can still go up there and and sled and do some uh, uphill skiing as they call it these days with your uh, skins on and and skin up the mountain and come down and you know I'm talking about Rocky Mountain National Park and yeah the old, the old ski resort they had there the and, hidden, um, hidden valley place yeah right Right. I think it was open until the '90s, so the 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 runs are still there, but there there's no lift access. But you can you can still go in and enjoy the area. Exactly, exactly, and of course, Rocky Mountains got some fabulous snowshoeing up around uh, Beaver Lake, and they they try and keep that road open in the wintertime, I believe, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah, and there's two other parks that have uh, small ski and snowboard areas with lifts that are still operating. And one of them is an Olympic National Park on Hurricane Ridge. They've got, I think, three lifts up there. And on a beautiful, you know, blue sky day, you can, you're skiing up there and you're looking straight into Mount Olympus. If you look south and if you look north, you're looking straight across um, the Straits of Juan de Fuca to Vancouver Island. And the scenery is phenomenal from that one. Right. And then the other one is down in Yosemite, and that's Badger Pass. And it's, um, again, a small area, but both of those areas are really good family-friendly areas because of their size. Right. And if you're not that big into downhill skiing, of course, you can park your car near Badger Pass and uh, cross-country ski out to Glacier Point. Yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, there are more than a few winter uh, adventures waiting us that will fill up um, quite a few years. Um, The national park system is just so diverse. It's incredible. No matter what month it is of the year, there's always something to do out there. Exactly. And, you know, even the cave parks like Mammoth and Carlsbad, those caves stay the same temperature year round. So it doesn't matter what the weather's doing up on the surface. You can go do a cave tour. And speaking about caves, um, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Apostle Island's National Lakeshore and the ice caves that it gets when it gets really cold up there on uh, Lake Superior. That would be, I have never seen that. I would love to. Oh my gosh. I've I've seen the pictures and it it looks like great fun. Um, I know the Park Service is uh, 
very careful and when they open those because uh, the lake ice uh, can be kind of iffy at times and so they they really do a good job in making sure it's safe uh, before they allow people to, to walk out there across the lake ice and into the ice caves which just sparkle with all their uh, um, icicles coming down right yeah oh i'd love to see that one All right. Well, I appreciate uh, brainstorming with you ladies uh, today. And now we have to figure out uh, the best way to um, put off work and uh, get out onto the road to visit all these places. Exactly. (laughs) My list is always huge. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you, Kurt, so much for talking with us about our favorite winter destinations. And now I'm I'm inspired to, to see a few more. All right. Well, thank you very much and look forward to catching up uh, a little little down the road and uh, maybe we'll talk about our favorite summer destinations. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be working this year to bring you more episodes from out in the parks themselves. You can help us achieve that goal by supporting the traveler with a tax-deductible donation. You can find a donate link at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rebencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.